Hi, my name's Kevin. If you don't know me, it's a pleasure to meet you. So glad you guys are here. It is very lonely and quiet without you. So thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. For those of you who have been with us over the last several uh, weeks and months, we've been going through a series entitled Peter, A Living Hope. And we've been going through the character of Peter, who he is, life, history, biography, etc. Last week, we initiated a uh, portion of this series that goes through the actual letter that Peter wrote. And I attempted to share with you some provocations, some ideas that identity is at the core of the opening part of the letter because remembering who you are in a foreign and Babylonian kind of land is a really critical, important part of what it means to be a person of faith. This next installment is going to be a lengthy passage, so I'd just like to skim over it very quickly and highlight some key things here. This second portion, after he tells you about who you are, he goes back to the prophets who prophesied. Remember those people way back then, hundreds of years ago? Yeah, those people were actually talking about now. So he talks about the prophets who were testifying in advance the sufferings of Jesus. And those same prophets that were way back then that you've read about, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, etc., they're actually serving, not them, it wasn't just their time, but they're actually serving you. It's an indication or some sort of hint or clue or push for all of you that reading those ancient people is really critical. Why? Because they were actually speaking to you, for you. They were in service of you. And so what were they trying to attempt to do? What were the fundamental message? Well, you are called to be holy. They're pulling in a lot of themes and teachings that have been there ever since Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, first five books of the Bible, they're trying to pull that in. And this whole idea of holiness, which is one of the fundamental themes of Leviticus, is being thrust upon us once again. So Peter is saying, remember the prophets, they weren't speaking just to them, they're speaking to you now, and they are continuing the similar theme of holiness. And Continuing along with that holiness, it's once again because you were ransomed. Uh, it's because you have come to trust in God. And, and so don't forget the history in the past from where you came. Now that you understand this, as you can see, I'm skimming over this very quickly. There's a lot here. Love one another. It all comes back down to this once again. Love one another. This is core and central. Do not forget this. Why? Because honestly, all the other things that we do are going to pass away. But this one thing that the Lord has commanded us, this word of loving one's neighbor and loving yourself and loving the world and loving your enemy, loving will not pass away. This is what is going to endure. So if that's going to be the thing, if that's what the prophets were talking about, then get rid of all the other things that get in that way. Malice and slander and guile and sincerity, just get rid of it. It's all going to burn anyway. Interesting for those of you who think about end times and the prophecies of Revelation, etc. It's not the earth that's going to burn, it's these things that are going to burn. These are the things that are going to go away. So long for what he calls pure spiritual milk, the basics. Get back to that pure foundation. So after all of that buildup, it's a very lengthy letter, a lengthy portion to say, remember the prophets, they were speaking to you. This is why you're supposed to be holy. This is why you're supposed to love, because that is the thing that endures. 
After he does that, he drives it home with one of the most significant metaphors that is found throughout the entirety of our tradition. And that is the metaphor of stones, of rocks. And you're going to be like, excuse me? Rocks? Are you serious? Yes, he's deadly serious. And so are the ancients, and so will we be too. So he says, in illustration of this metaphor, as the primary illustration for how we are to understand everything that he was just saying, come to him a living stone, Jesus being a living stone, though rejected by mortals, yet chosen and precious in God's sight, and like living stones, that's all of you, by the way, living stones, let yourselves be built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, and he's going to refer back to those same prophets that he referenced. See, I am laying in Zion a stone. Uh, excuse me, not just a stone, a cornerstone. This is a really key illustration metaphor here. Picture and image. Chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. By the way, there it is, the reference. Remember I told you those prophets were talking about you? They were there to serve you? Well, I'm going to reference one of those prophets, Isaiah. The stone that the builders rejected has become the very head of the corner. So that same stone, Jesus, that was crucified, rejected, has now become the capstone, the head of this cornerstone, the stone that makes them stumble in a rock that makes them fall. Once again, refer referring to the prophets, this time at the Psalms, referring to those ancient wisdom. Jesus uses this reference as well in Matthew chapter 21. So he refers to Jesus as a stone, a living stone. He's going to say then, you sh too should also be living stones. And that stone is going to be the very head of the cornerstone. So he's Building on a lot of this, by the way, what does Peter's name mean? Rocky. So do you see how he's playing off his, his own name here? But you, you are a chosen people, royal priesthood, holy nation, God's own people. Okay, so there's the theological idea, in order that you may proclaim the excellence of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Does anybody remember the name of the prophet? That is Hosea. For those of you who remember this story, Hosea was commissioned by God to marry a prostitute. And the illustration in that prophecy was, this is what Israel is doing to God. Prostituting herself with all of the foreign gods and the foreign ways and the foreign practices. Even though Israel is covenanted with God, married to God on Mount Sinai, they are... Doing, I noticed there's children in the room. They are doing things that are not in accordance with that marriage covenant. And so Hosea is charged with this uh, kind of life, with this way of going to marry a prostitute. And uh, in that marriage, Hosea and Gomer have children. And two of the children's names are Lo Ruhama and Lo Ami, which means no compassion, you are not my people. So just like Isaiah and Psalms, now Hosea is also referencing this. But what Peter is now saying, that is what you used to be. But now, because you have come to the living stone, the cornerstone, 
you have completely changed. Something has now become different because you are being built into a spiritual house together. So that's the passage there. And there's a whole bunch of stuff in there that we skipped over that you could spend some time in. I want to focus in on this metaphor, this illustration, the picture of stones, living stones, cornerstone, Jesus as a stone, you all as living stones, because this is an incredibly powerful, like I said, one of the most profound images that we have in the passages of our Bible. Last week, we talked about identity, and the suggestion there was it is really, really hard to maintain your sense of identity when you live in Babylon, because Babylon confuses and seduces you. Everything around you tells you once again that you are actually not in covenant with God. So you have to remind yourself all of that. Uh, You have to remember who your true identity is, to be chosen and to be destined. So that was part one. Today, I'd like to talk about fidelity. And the kind of fidelity here, because that seems a little bit redundant, to be honest with you, fiercely faithful. Well, faithful means to have fidelity. But what Peter is talking about here when he mentions the prophets serving you, connecting with Jesus, that whole string is two main images, two main ideas here. The first is that there's a fidelity of our ancestors to the life we are living today, therefore a fidelity that we ought to have to our ancestors. There's this connection between what they said then and what we are doing today. And the illustration, as I've mentioned before, is that he's going to talk about living stones. He's going to talk about how we are to be that same kind of witness and testimony today for each other in accordance with Jesus, because if we are disciples of Jesus and Jesus is a living stone, then you also should be a living stone. This is made explicit, actually, in the second letter that Peter writes. Did you know he writes two letters, which is why you have first and second Peter? In the book or the letter of second Peter, he actually makes this explicit in chapter three. This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you. Thank you for the reminder. I am trying to arouse your sincere intention by reminding you that you should, and here's the key thing, remember the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken through your apostles. Peter tells us explicitly, the reason why these letters exist is I don't want you to forget what was spoken of of in the past, and I don't want you to forget what was spoken of by your own Lord and by your apostles, your contemporaries, the people that have taught you now. And this, I think, sums up the entire idea behind this ancestry, the prophets then and the prophets today like the apostles and using living stones as the idea, uh, the image, the picture, and the metaphor. And again, this is not, however, a moral fidelity. This is essentially a communal fidelity, a communal fidelity. So what about these stones? For those of you who are going with us to Israel, and for those of you who would like to sign up, there's still time for a $100 early bird discount. Get on it. Come with us. We're going to drive down a road to a city in the northern Galilee called Gamla. On the way there, off to the side of the road, 
are these stone structures. And there's a sign there that will tell you that these are called dolmens. Here's another picture of it there as you head down the road. And they just stand there, and they've been there, archaeologists believe, for thousands of years. This is actually a pretty common practice. Here's one in County Clare, Ireland. Here's another one in South Korea. Here's another one in India. Perhaps one of the most famous dolmens that exist, and they don't really call it a dolmen, but it's a very similar idea, is, yeah, you guys are way ahead of me, is Stonehenge. Now, when I was going through these slides prior to service, just to make sure everything was working, Jen, can I put you on the spot? What was the first word that came out of your mouth? What is that? How many of you asked the question, what is that? When we drive down that road and we are heading to a different site and these things are off to the side, most of the people who are not asleep on the bus, who are looking out the window, will immediately say, excuse me, what are those things there? In the city of Gezer, one of our first stops on our trip, you will walk along the road and then you will see these particular standing stones. And then we go there and we do our teaching there. And again, the question is, what are those? What are they doing there? Why did people put them there? That beautiful, childlike curiosity is exactly the point. And in fact, the answer to the question, what are they, what are they doing there, is still somewhat of a mystery. Archaeologists believe that they might be grave sites, they might be commemoration sites, that we don't really know. We have some ideas, but the reality is we don't know. What we do know is that every time a stone is stood up, every time a stone is built in this particular kind of structure, it is there to express some sort of idea and to cause and evoke within all of us the same question, what is that there for? Why does that exist? And that practice, which is thousands and thousands of years old, is actually found in your biblical text and in our tradition. Let's go through three really quick ones that many of you are already familiar with. Remember my quote, not my quote, but the quote that I gave last week, people need to be reminded much more than they need to be instructed. So let's just be reminded once again. There's a story in Genesis chapter 35 of Jacob wrestling with God. Then God went up uh, from him at the place where he had spoken with him. Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. And he poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the place where God had spoken with him Bethel, or Bethel, which means house of God. Here's one of our first instances of what we have of a standing stone. And by the way, if you see the territory, the geology of that location, there are stones everywhere. It's like, how would you know which one is which? So you have to stand this one up, a pillar, a pillar of stone, poured oil on it, and called that place Bethel. Of the many layers of interpretation, what we can probably consider here is that this is most likely a dedication Something really amazingly special happened at this moment where Jacob is wrestling with God, gives him a vision, helps him understand his identity in a little bit of a fresh and new way, changes the course and the trajectory of his life. And the standing stone is there to say, this 
This place is special because of all the things that God did here. This is the residence of God. This is where God resides, and I want to remember this place, and I want generations to remember this place. So a standing stone is in many ways a dedication of what God did, how God changed the course and the trajectory of your life, and to remember that place. So here's another one from Exodus chapter 24. You guys all know the Ten Commandments, Moses coming down off the mountain, yes, with two stones. We often forget that Moses also set up standing stones. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord from the commandments. He rose early in the morning, built an altar at the foot of the mountain, and set up 12 pillars. Why 12? 12 tribes. So he's commemorating something there. So in addition to dedication, a standing stone is also a commemoration, a looking to something else or someone else to say, I am remembering you. You are with me. It's not just me on this mountain. It's also them. I represent these people, and we together are going to be part of the covenant that is happening here. And then many of you know the story of Joshua. Later on in the story, uh, Joshua takes over after Moses dies and leads the people of Israel into the promised land. They have to cross the Jordan River to do so. They take 12 stones out of that river, and then they set them up. Later, after that happens, there's this passage in Chapter 4, verse 20, those 12 stones that they had taken out of the Jordan, Joshua set up in Gilgal, saying to the Israelites, when your children ask their parents in time to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know, Israel crossed over the Jordan here on dry ground. In addition to dedication, in addition to commemoration, we now add a curriculum. The stones are there because they are to remind the next generation, they are to be teaching tools to the next generation. This is what God did. This is what we did. This is how the Spirit moved. Remember, we are passing this now on to you. So my friends, whenever you come across standing stones, whenever you come across those pillars that are set up and you go, what is that there for? Most likely, it is there as a reminder of something special that happened, to commemorate a moment, to join together with the community, and to be used as an image and a model to teach the next generation. This is who God is. This is what God has done. The idea of building stones obviously has evolved over time. And throughout the course of history, We've become much more sophisticated at building using those very same stones. And without going into an entire history of technological development, let's just jump right to the Temple of Artemis as another, perhaps, standing stone that we could say. In Peter's day, because he's living in a Greco-Roman time, and as we mentioned last week about Alexander being somebody who brought in temples and theaters and gymnasia and all this amazing construction. And given that Peter in this passage mentions the word cornerstone, in addition to referring to those, those standing stones, he's now also pulling in additional stone imagery, which is a building stone. And this is one of the most incredible buildings in the ancient world, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, as well as the towers, uh, hanging towers of Babylon. 
It's got 377, it's 377 feet long, 180 feet wide, 127 iconic style columns, and it can fit easily a football field inside. It's massive and huge. And very similarly to a, a standing rock, to Stonehenge, to the Dolems, you walk by this and you go, what is that there for? Who is that supposed to be about? And very much like the standing stones of the ancient time, these standing stones, these temple structures, are to commemorate a dedication to be used as a teaching. This one particularly, Artemis, the huntress, the gatherer, the protectress, the great virgin goddess. So you are reminded of all that when you look at this temple talking about memorializing, this is definitely a footnote, but it was too fun not to put in there. The temple of Artemis was burnt down in 356 BC on the day of Alexander the Great's birthday by a gentleman, an arsonist, who believed that by setting the temple on fire, he would become famous forever. And as a result of that, the Senate of Ephesus decided nobody is to ever mention this guy's name ever because he did this horrible thing. You want to know his name? <laughs> his name is Herostratus. Congratulations, you did it. He became famous forever. So life goals, well done. Some poet decided to write his name in violation of the Senate's rules, and so now we have his name. And yes, now he is. You are continuing to perpetuate his life goals. He is now famous forever. I think that's, that's just, I just love that story. But it is also very much connected to the idea of memorializing, of wanting to be remembered. Obviously, the second temple that we should take into consideration is the temple in Jerusalem. And the temple in Jerusalem, you could spend a lifetime studying. It is a central piece of the Jesus story. It is a central piece of Israel's story. And there are a million and one things to consider about its construction, about its history, etc. For us and for today, we're just going to consider a couple things. This is by all means nowhere exhaustive. But the temple uh, in Jerusalem was the center of social, religious, and economic activity. You would actually go to the temple for banking. You would go to the temple, obviously, to make sacrifices. And you would go to the temple to socialize. This is where the gatherings and the festivals happened. It was a manifestation of heaven on earth. Josephus, a first century historian, talks about the temple being that place where heaven and earth meet. So much so that the story of creation with the stars and the planets and the sun and the earth are painted on to the veil that is in the inner room. This is the physical display of God's glory and majesty. You look at this, and that's one of the reasons why it has to be so ornate and so large and so beautiful and glorious, the kind of construction, the white, the gold glimmering off of the sun. I, I can only imagine what it would have looked like in that hot sun, how glistening and glorious it would have been. That is the image in the picture, a physical manifestation of God's glory and majesty. And of course, it is the place, the space and time of where sacred and holy activity takes place. You go there because it is separate from profane, mundane, everyday, just got to check it off your calendar kind of work. When you go to the temple, this place, this time is different. It is sacred and it is holy. The temple's gone through many iterations, but one of them most recently uh, in Jesus' day 
was it was actually torn down and rebuilt by Herod the Great starting in the first century BC. And if you see very carefully, and again, some of you will be there to see this, you can see that there's a platform that's often referred to as the temple. That's not the temple. That's just the temple platform. Because what Herod said, this is how majestic this building needs to be. Let's really put it up. So he builds a platform and puts the temple on top of the platform. And this platform, by the way, holds approximately 42 football fields. It's about 2.4 million square feet of that platform. So the temple on top sits right in the middle of that platform. The, one of the most famous images is the Western Wall, what is previously known as the Western Wall. It's now called the Kotel, which is Hebrew for wall. The holiest place in Judaism because they can't get to any place uh, in, inside. Now, a lot of people point to this wall and say, this is the temple. That's actually not the temple. That is just the wall of the foundation of the temple. But you can see just how huge just the platform is to elevate the actual temple. In fact, it's very much akin, although in much more elaborate ways, very much like the Statue of Liberty. Did you know that the Statue of Liberty is shorter than the platform upon which it stands? It's the same idea. The Statue of Liberty is really a central, important piece of American history, and it needs to be elevated, so we build something that's even tall. Same kind of idea. Now, if you're going to build a platform that is that big to house a building that is that huge and ornate, you have to build it appropriately. And the engineers, and again, you could study this forever, the engineers of the first century, without any of the modern machinery that we have, were, I want to I say, freaking nuts. They were incredible at how they built this thing. One of the key elements of the structures is to take large pieces of stone and lay them crosswise so that they kind of interlace with one another and that the gravitational pull actually ties the building closer together. And these are called cornerstones. The cornerstones are the things that hold the entire thing together. And they are huge. Some of them up to 50 tons, 100,000 pounds. And you, when you go there and you see these things, and remember, first century BC, none of the modern equipment, we don't actually have equipment that can lift these stones today. How they did it is just absolutely astonishing. So when Peter is writing this letter, and he's using this language of stones, living stones, cornerstones, he's pulling in all of that that the ancients would have already known in their minds. The standing stones that commemorated, dedicated, that were used as curriculum, that every time people saw them, they said, what is that for? Tell me more. And then talking about Jesus as the chief cornerstone, to talk about these building structures and how huge they are. So he's using all of this language when he says, come to him, a living stone, though rejected by mortals, yet chosen and precious in God's sight. And like living stones, let you, let all of you be built into a spiritual house. What's a spiritual house? A temple. Let all of you be built into a spiritual house. To be holy, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. 
So in addition to dedication, commemoration, and curriculum, he adds this entire part of the spiritual household, the cornerstone to say, this is what we are building. But guess what? That is not what we're building. You are what we are building. If you think those standing stones are amazing and should be used as commemoration and as a memorial, how much more are you that? If you think the cornerstone of the temple of Jerusalem is amazing and is a spectacular building where all of that amazing spiritual stuff happens, guess what? (laughs) That's you. We, my friends, not the physical temple. We. We are the dwelling place of God, connected to all the other living stones. And here's where he pulls in the prophets, both past present and future, because we are now going to become those living stones for the next generation, bound and strengthened by the chief cornerstone, Jesus. The imagery here is just so visceral and powerful and just ingrained in their brains. And this actually is a theme that you'll find throughout other passages. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, don't you know that you yourselves, which by the way is plural, all of you together, are God's temple, one temple, all of us together, and that God's spirit lives in all of you. If anyone destroys God's temple, like you know, Herostratus, God will destroy him, for, God, for God's temple is sacred, and you are that temple. Now, a lot of people use this language, because you know, English is horrible, and the word you can be both plural and singular. It's helpful to think about the South, because what we should be translating this is... I was actually told at one particular point that to say singular, you say y'all. Plural is all y'all. So that's my understanding. And then Ephesians chapter 2. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. Also members of God's household built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Do Do you hear that same theme? just like the apostles and the prophets, just like them, the history and the ancestry, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. The whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are built together spiritually into a dwelling place for God. My friends, the stones are incredible. The temples are astonishing. How much more are you? This is what Peter's saying. This is the image and the metaphor. And part of the reason why, you know, we, we should, we'll, we're careful about this, but Spark has never owned a building. Some of us never want to own a building. We've been renting since day one. Part of that is to ensure that we never, ever confuse the building with the church. Because what Peter is saying here is like, You know those stones. You know how spectacular they are, how much they awe you, how much they inspire you, how much they cause you to say, what happened there? That's you, all of us together. And what's really, really critical about this is the individualism that sometimes can come if we only focus on this. It is really important to focus on who are you. That's part one. Remember who you are. You are chosen. You are dedicated. You are covered in Christ's blood as a sacred, covenanted person. That is who you are. But the individualism of that creeps in if we do not 
if we also forget, if we ignore these other parts of our passage, which say that we also belong with one another. And that kind of individualism can be highly detrimental. And if you read 1 Corinthians and Ephesians and 1 Peter as to say, I am the temple, you've missed it. You are not the temple. You're a rock by yourself, just a rock. It is only when you are put together with others that you become the temple. Founded on the chief cornerstone who ties us all together. And when you do, you become the very presence and manifestation of Jesus on earth, where heaven and earth come together, where our children go, what happened here? All of that goodness happens in us. I don't have time to go over all of this stuff. This is very much in line with some ideas that are floating around in contemporary society and conversation. Habits of the Heart, written by these authors, primarily by Robert Bella, talks about uh, Alexis de Tocqueville, who's come to America. Many of you already know some of the social history behind all of this, to ask the question, what made America, America? What are some of the values? And one of the things that, he, uh, that they point out, the authors point out in this book, is that there's a fundamental communal ethic that was founded here. And one of the things that Tocqueville meant to shine a light on is, um, is this, this quote here, to create the kind of person who could sustain a connection to a wider political community and thus ultimately support the maintenance of free institutions. It was the connection to other people that made this nation what it was. The fragmentation, the polarization, the division, the contemptuousness, all the stuff that we're dealing with today are very much things that our ancestors, recent ancestors, thought would be detrimental to the health of our nation. He also warned that some aspects of our character, what he was one of the first to call individualism, might eventually isolate Americans, some from another, and thereby undermine the conditions of freedom. That kind of isolationism and individualism, what I would like to actually call independenceism. It's not that I am an individual, it is that I am an individual who doesn't need you. That is highly detrimental. Anybody experiencing that and feeling that? And then in The Myth of Normal, Gabor and Daniel Mate write this about trauma and what it does to us. It's a brilliant explication of the physiological and sociological and psychological effects of trauma. One of them is a fracturing and a loss of connection and a disintegration of ourselves from ourselves and from others. Trauma represents a fracturing of the self and of one's relationship to the world. That fracturing is the essence of trauma. As Peter Levine writes, trauma is about a loss of connection to ourselves, our families, and the world around us. When I read Peter talking about every single one of us being living stones connected together to become a spiritual household, bound together by the chief cornerstone Jesus to become this holy temple, I think of this and how the culture, the Babylonian, Silicon Valley, Western American individualized independentism culture has seeped in and we don't need each other. We don't want to be around each other. We are, I am my own temple. 
And that very individualistic, fractured, disintegrated idea, sense, posture, way in this world is damaging our souls, our hearts, and is damaging the church. And when, he, when Peter writes about us coming together to be living stones, I see him reminding us that it is when we are together that we become the temple, that when we bind ourselves and we commit ourselves to our past, to our present, and to our future generations, that is when we become the temple of God. There's this saying, um, I don't know where it comes from, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Some people have suggested it's an African proverb, which reminds me of this African proverb that says, that's probably not an African proverb. I would like to propose to you, my friends, that going alone is actually a myth. All going is going together. All of it. And once we recognize that, then we can finally go. So come to him, all of us. When I think about this passage, and when I think about the temple that God is building today, I think about you. The only problem with this TV is that it's too small to put up all the pictures I wanted to put up. Because when I think about this passage, when I think about the living stones, when I think about all of that, when I think about... God did something here. And I want to dedicate this time and this moment. I want to memorialize the beauty and wonder and mystery of God. And when I want to show the next generation of just how good, how loving, kind, compassionate God is, I don't look to a building. I look to these people. That's what I look to. They are the living stones. You are the living stones. When I think about what is the center of social, religious, and economic activity, what is the place where I go to when I want to find connection, when I want to find spirituality, when I want to find how to navigate this world economically, where do I go? Do I go to the bank? No. In this conception, you go to us which is why your generosity and the rescue team and the helping of refugees and those who need financial assistance, like, yes, this is, this is what I think of. This is the temple. When I think about the manifestation of heaven on earth, I don't just think about myself at the beach, although that is really nice, I, I, more sunscreen next time, but there are those moments, but when I really think about the manifestation of heaven on earth, I think about and I think about what this church has done and the hundreds and hundreds of people that have manifested God's glory. You are, my friends, the physical display of God's glory and majesty. And when we gather together, whether that's in service, in small groups, in serving together, in serendipitous meetings along the way, something happens to space and time. And this moment and this gathering and the spiritual effervescence of what happens here becomes holy and sacred. Um, several, uh, several months ago, last year, we celebrated our 10th anniversary, and I thought about this video that when we, we get put together. together. We are saying to I would each other just, and to I'm not going to show the whole right thing, now, but I would like to encourage you to go back and watch the video because it is a brilliant manifestation of the previous 10 years of Spark. 
And when I look at these pictures and these images, I think these are living stones. This is what God has been building to us together all together. It's a brilliant, brilliant thing that God is doing. And it's reminding us once again that we are those living stones. So go back and watch that video and be reminded once again of who you are. There's two um, kind of cherries on top that uh, I'd like to share before we get to communion. This is the first cherry on top. Uh, this is a city called Sepphoris. It is uh, very close to Nazareth where Jesus grew up. You can see it's a building, and it's got cornerstones. Do you see the cornerstones? Yeah. What's different about those cornerstones? Can anybody tell? Yeah, they got the little decorations. Do you know why those decorations are on there? Those are tombstones. Those are sarcophagi. Those are boxes for dead people. And I love this image, and I love this picture, because in many ways, this is exactly what Peter was talking about. Remember those prophets? Remember the people that came before you? Remember Jesus and the apostles? Remember all of those folks that have come before us? Yes, this is part of what we are building our temple upon. This is what we are building our entire spiritual house upon. So don't forget, you want to know why Spark spends so much time talking about the Bible and talking about history and talking about context and going all the way back to Genesis? Because we are building a spiritual house based upon this long tradition and the fragmentation of like, well, we got this now. We don't need those old people then is part of the problem. We actually do. We are continuing the tradition and reaching back to those folks is for our connection, reintegration with the story. The last cherry on top is that my daughter and I were at Summer Wind's nursery, and she wanted to buy a plant to plant, which she still has yet to plant. <laughs> but she was looking at these succulents, and she was looking at these, and I thought, those are funny looking. Those are pretty fun. And then I thought about Ling, and I thought about the plant swap. Yeah, not, good job, Dominic. <laughs> and I thought about the gathering and the connection and the community that happens there. I thought, that's pretty cool. Does anybody know what these are called? A picture is worth a thousand words. When I had that thought about Ling and the plant swap and the people that come together just to participate in a community, to connect, to grow your relationship, to be the very presence and essence of Christ's love to one another in a place like this, I thought, those are living stones being built together to become precious into a spiritual house. And as we do so, we become a holy priesthood. So my friends, every single one of you, be reminded once again, you are not a lone stone rocking it by yourself. You are a living stone connected with others so that when people come to see you, they go, what happened here? Tell me more. Why, uh, why does that exist? There's something here to learn. And then when they see you be the center of heaven and earth, where all that comes together, we are filled with awe and wonder once again. You want to know what God is like? Take a look at the temple. 
You want to know how good God is? Take a look at the temple. You want to know God's compassion and kindness and closeness? Look at the stones. Watch how they live. Watch how they behave. That's how you will know. So in accordance with the chief cornerstone, I'm going to invite us all to participate in communion together, which is another metaphor and physical representation of the one who binds us all together. And my prayer is that as we participate in communion together and as you partake of the elements, you do so together and you are reminded once again how connected you are to that past, to the present, to our future generations. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many, for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. My friends, all of you are welcome at this table. And as we sing, please come.